Hello and welcome to Presenting, a podcast where we chat about various topics related to role-playing games. I am John Godek, and with me today is Connor Alexander. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, John. Appreciate it. Yeah, yeah you know, I actually contacted you like right when the Kickstarter was out via yeah. your info, but I think you were so busy that uh, you probably never even saw the email. So, yeah, things were a little nuts back then. Things were a little nuts uh, last last March. It was a little insane. Yeah. So I'm very thankful <laughs> I'm to Nicole for for connecting us. So I think that's I think that's awesome. So yeah, yeah. yeah. So Connor is a longtime uh, tabletop RPG player who went on to managing game stores, working in games distribution, and eventually designing and publishing his own game, Coyote and Crow, which is a new sci-fi RPG set in the uncolonized future. And the first thing I got to say is this journey you went through is like every nerd's dream. So you've got to tell us, how did you pull this off when so many of us aren't, aren't able to do half of that? Yeah, yeah. I, you know, it's a, it's a mystery formula. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a weird feeling to say, you know, I've never played the lottery. And then the first time I played the lottery, I hit the jackpot. Uh, mm -hmm. I, it's, it's, um, but I think that's, there's, uh, I think to say that is a little unfair to myself, because I do think that there's more than just luck. There was, there was obviously a formula here. And I think dissecting that formula over the last year has been a, a big part of what my my day to day job is right now is finding out exactly why my audience responded the way they did. Um, and so, you know, to, to go back to your your point about like uh, sort of my path to this, um, I I started out. I mean, I've been a gamer my whole life, and in and in in most most of those years, I never never considered working in the game industry. I was a rabid game player, both tabletop and RPG games, and uh, you know, I, it, it never occurred to me that I I had something to contribute in that arena. Um, I've always been a creative person. I've been a writer. My degrees in film and television, um, but uh, back in twenty fourteen. 2014? Yeah, 2014. Um, I got laid off from a, a marketing job that I was working and I started, uh, I, I helped uh, some folks open up uh, a local game store here in West Seattle. And uh, and that was my first exposure to working within games at a different, kind of a different angle and kind of seeing the, the, the from, from an industry perspective. And um, one of the first things I began to notice was that uh, there was just this um, monopoly, no pun intended, of uh, white developers, white publishers, uh, you know, either American or European that had a had a stranglehold on the whole industry. And while there were some great games coming out, I felt like there were a ton of stories and concepts that were just being completely left on the table. And um, the, the concept of connecting my own indigeneity to games had never crossed my mind. Like it had never, those two things had never been put together um, until I started seeing more games with bad representation. And that's, mm -hmm. that's when it began to click for me that maybe I did have something to say in the game industry. Um, and then before long, I, I jumped from working in a small game shop to working for a, a distributor uh, of games uh, where I was an account manager and I worked, I worked with probably more than 40 publishers. Uh, Wizards of the Coast was on all my accounts, mm -hmm. uh, Catalyst Game Labs. Uh, so a lot of RPG folks, but then also a lot of great tabletop folks like mm -hmm. Smirk and mm -hmm. Dagger. Um, and uh, getting to see that side of the industry and seeing how uh, how games were developed, how they were published, getting getting sort of to see behind the curtain 
of that, I really think helped helped me lay the foundation for some of the reasons that Coyote and Crow was successful. I was able to put together some of those building blocks that maybe other folks who haven't been in the industry don't know about. Um, so I think that was that was sort of the path. And then, then by the time the Kickstarter launched, I you know I fully was expecting it to do maybe twenty five thousand based on the, the sort of friends I had in the industry and people who felt passionate about supporting me who already knew me. I had no idea it was going to snowball. So by the time you know we hit two weeks into the campaign and it was getting close to to five hundred thousand dollars, I was starting to have have conversations with my bosses at work about like does this mean I'm staying at this job still or uh, do I have to put in notice here? Yeah. And so those, those conversations started happening, but I, I never intended to be a game publisher. Like that was never on my radar. I just wanted to put out a book. I wanted to put out a book that I felt really passionate about that I had had other writers contribute to. Um, so yeah, it, it all caught me a little off guard. <laughs> so, so what were some of the challenges you faced given that, you know, your background was, kind of in the physical marketing and distribution of games to becoming a publisher, which was kind of a new yeah. thing for you. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm, I will say that I'm, I am still absolutely learning every day. I'm learning something new about the industry, whether I'm talking to printers uh, or graphic design folks, there, there is such a huge learning curve at being the owner of a publishing company rather than the writer of a role-playing game. And I think those are mm -hmm. two completely different skill sets. And I, I'm lucky that I did have a background with retail sales and that I know some mm -hmm. game stores and I have a general understanding of how to do you know, print runs, how to estimate print run sizes. Right. Those are all things that, that contributed to help me being a publisher. But I think as far as creating a role-playing game, the, the lesson that I learned early on that was really valuable was that I don't know everything. I can't know everything. And then if I want this game to be what I want it to be, I need to start collaborating. And, and thankfully that I, I have a little bit of experience with that through film and television. And uh, you know, I've probably had every role you can imagine in film and television. Mm -hmm. And the idea of collaborating with a team comes really naturally to me. And one of my goals or ambitions for this game was that I didn't want this to be about a Cherokee future. I'm, I'm Cherokee. I did not want this to be about an alternate Cherokee future. I wanted this to be, I wanted this to feel like a competitor to all the big $50 books you see in an RPG shelf. Uh, all of the, the names we all know really well. I wanted to just sit next to those and feel like a peer. And to mm -hmm. do that, I knew that I, I had to collaborate. I had to get other writers. I had, I, I have no art skills. So I knew I wanted to get a team of artists. And I think what spoke to a lot of backers on this was the fact that even though it took me two and a half years really to get the team together that I wanted, um, is that during that time period, those voices contributing evolved Coyote and Crow into something that I never expected it to be. I mean, I, I did a lot of the world building, but when you start diving into things like the language and some of the, the essential city elements and some of the nation backgrounds, a lot of that credit goes to my the, the the writing team that I brought on board. I mean, they get a huge amount of credit for that. So yeah, it, that actually collaboration is important. Yeah, it brings up uh, two questions for me. And the first one, yeah. I'll, I'll talk about the Kickstarter. You know, fully funded in forty five minutes, uh, reaching uh, at this point over a million dollars. You know, what set Coyote and Crow apart 
from all these other tabletop RPGs that were doing Kickstarters that resonated so strongly with gamers, not even indigenous gamers or gamers of color, but all sure. gamers. Sure. So I, I'll say two things here. There's a there's a, a a warm squishy side, and then there's a very practical side to that answer. Mm-hmm. The the warm squishy side is is that I built up a lot of goodwill as I was developing. I I built right. up a lot of goodwill with uh, gamers, some other industry professionals that I was privileged enough to know. Um, there was there was a lot of buzz going into it uh, that was that sort of helped me gain a groundswell of of goodwill. Um, because at the point we went into the Kickstarter, quite frankly, we still only had uh, I think sort of our our second iteration of the rules and probably excuse me, maybe 20% of our art. So it wasn't like we had a polished product ready to go. A lot of what we did with the Kickstarter was based on faith uh, from the backers from what we presented. And so there was this sort of warm, squishy feeling of like, we love this concept because it feels fresh. And not only does it feel fresh and different, it's not just that it's original world, it's that it is pulling in representation for people who have been traditionally underrepresented or poorly represented. That's the warm, squishy side of the answer. The second side of the, the that equation, though, is that, and this is, uh, there's a huge amount of privilege I have. I'm a, I'm a white passing native who came from the board game industry, and the 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 chain of privilege that goes along with that led to me to a point where I was I had a comfortable salaried job day job that allowed me to when that Kickstarter launched gamble on marketing. And the marketing that Backerkit did and the money that I put into a uh, front load of money that I put into the marketing really helped. And, I, and I, I'll, I'll just be very forthright with you here, here and say that originally I had $500 budgeted for all of my marketing for Coyote and Crow. That, and that was, this was all like my personal money that I had. I, I, would, I was not a business at this point. I had $500 and the people at Backerkit told me, they said, that's that's cute. It was almost like a pat on the head. Like that's so cute. That's really adorable, right? Um, and and I had said, okay, well let's 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 do a hundred dollars on the first day and kind of see how it goes. Like, well, and I want to hold off until we've seen how many backers we're going to get on that first day yeah. before we even launch that. Yeah. By about the fourth day, I was spending more than four hundred dollars a day on advertising through Backer Kit, and and I again, that's from a place of privilege. But if you're talking, if, if this message is going out to other RPG folks who, who want to go to Kickstarter or other other crowdfunding uh, platforms, I cannot emphasize enough how valuable that marketing was. You think you have a reach. You do not know reach until you've put money into that that social media reach, that mm-hmm. those marketing campaigns. I got I was getting real time data about how many people were seeing the ads and then how many people were coming back and backing. So. On the one hand, we had this wonderful, beautifully put together product with a lot of heart and love. And then on the other, we were able to be lucky enough to have the money to put eyes on the project that normally would not have seen it. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, that, you know, I've heard from folks with Kickstarters a couple of things that were important. One of them is to have a very polished product before you go. Um, which yeah. it sounds like you were still developing it. And then yeah. spending money on the marketing, you know, so it that that seems that you kind of reinforce that. Now, Absolutely. The other question that you, you mentioned your team 
and you know, Coyote and Crow has been crafted by indigenous authors and artists. Yeah. And can you talk about the process of building your team and how challenging was it to forge an all indigenous team for Coyote? And yeah, I, <laughs> I, I am not trying to be hyperbolic when I say this. It was the most difficult thing I have ever done in my life. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it brought me to tears multiple times, tears of frustration, tears of anxiety. Um, the, the problem is, is that we while we sometimes uh, indigenous folks sometimes present a unified front on things and sometimes we're all in agreement and we can get to this sort of groundswell of team building kind of feel for a particular political movement or a particular goal. The truth is, is that we're very separate cultures. We're very separate people scattered by very different geography and needs. And the reality is, is that within something specific like the game industry, there isn't, there aren't enough people who are indigenous who have things in common that we're connecting. It's not like there was a indigenous board gamers coffee circle that we all had. We could all get together and talk. Right, right. So the, the struggle to find folks who, uh, who were competent within the game industry or, or had the skill set within the game industry that I needed, but then also had the time and availability. I mean, there were some folks that I spoke to who were like very enthusiastic about the product, but they had a full-time day job in the game industry and could not contribute. Mm -hmm. Or uh, a great example is there's a couple of artists who uh, were absolutely amazing artists and they either were too busy to contribute because they were locked into contract with folks like Marvel Comics mm -hmm. or they can contribute one or two pieces. Um, and I want to call out Je Jeffrey Varega as a, a case of that there. Originally, Jeffrey was going to be on board for a number of other pieces in our book. He's a great artist who's done work for Marvel Comics and has had stuff in museums. He's a fantastic artist. And in the end, he really could only contribute one piece. And he was so apologetic about that. But then on the other end of the scale, you have these folks who are absolutely passionate indigenous folks who have never been paid for their work and their life. They've never done a, a bit of writing or art for a game ever. Hmm. And how do you bring those people in in a way where you're, you're encouraging them and lifting them up to the level you need them to be but you're also not just spending money in a way that's uh, counterproductive to the product that you're trying to create, to, to the game world you're trying to build. Right, right. And, and that balance was frankly exhausting. It was exhausting and terrifying and frustrating. Um, but now I'm in the great spot where there are literally dozens of indigenous folks that I've, I've built a bridge with who I'm excited to work on for future in Coyote and Crow products. So now, how, how crucial was that process to you? I mean, you didn't have to do that, right? You could oh, yeah. have had somebody yeah. else vet the representation, but well, so, yeah, you so, wanted to take absolutely. the extra step. Absolutely. So I think at the beginning, my, my, my goal when I figured out that I wanted an all indigenous team, my goal was sort of a line in the sand. You, I only want folks indigenous to North America and that's it. But I quickly realized that um, if I went that route, I might be developing this for 10 years. And and I, I just didn't have the time or the bandwidth. I was working like a 50-hour day job, um, 50-hour-a-week day job. And I, I, wanted, I wanted the product out there because I felt like the timing was right. Like we were starting to see some more indigenous representation in other media. And I was like, now is the time this game needs to be in readers' hands. So I, I made the decision about halfway into that process to say, all right, well, I only want writers that are indigenous but I'm willing to make exceptions for artists. If uh, a non-Indigenous artist are coming on board and they're willing to work with my writers and with me on art mm -hmm. direction so that we're making sure that we're representing things properly. 
And I think that was that was the point where I gained real momentum because at that point I was able to overcome some timing hurdles. Um, so it was it was absolutely vital that I I sort of opened that gate a little bit and let in some allies. Mm-hmm. Now it's interesting. So I, I see your shirt here. I'm guessing that's some of the merch from your your website. All my heroes. Well, it is it is not. It's actually somebody else's. We're actually <laughs> oh, okay. working on some new merch right now. Okay. Um, okay. But uh, yeah, I actually it's funny you mention that because I actually. Um, made it a point to try to leave colonizing the word colonizing right. uh, and things like Christopher Columbus and everything else out of the book, even in the, mm. even in the setup, even when we describe mm-hmm. what's going on in the world building, I tried really hard to leave that out because I, I wanted it to feel like its own thing, not a reaction to colonizing. Right. right. So, well, and, and, and actually to that point, you know, I th- you could have made a game that was all just about, the uncolonized present, but you kind yeah. of took that a step further and said, we're not going to do that. We're going to show what the future looks like. Yeah. You know, um, what were some of the opportunities that, that provided for you given that, that whole you know, artistic uh, license to, to go into the future? Yeah. yeah. That's, that's a great question. So I think um, the, the first, the first core piece of that, I think is mindset and specifically it's the mindset of the players. And I wanted um I wanted my players, both native and non-native in this case, to um, get themselves out of a comparison mindset. So I think mm-hmm. if we had set this game in the present, right. you right. immediately begin to compare it to the technology and cultural levels we have right now. And I think when you set something in the future, you most RPG folks and sci-fi fantasy folks are immediately going to open the floodgates of their own imagination a bit. And you have a tendency to allow for more speculative, more speculative parts of fiction to incorporate into your world a little more easily. Things like uh, our GATs, which are the 3D printers in the game, or um, the Adenati. All of these sort of the, the sort of sci-fi elements of the game become more easily acceptable. And especially with my native players, I really wanted to encourage them to feel like they could dream a little bit, not just about what their lives might be like in this, in this flipped universe, but what their, their future generations lives might be like, what stories might their grandchildren be telling in this world. And so I think sitting in the future was actually crucial. I I think sitting in the, in the present might've left me open for a lot of criticism Mm -hmm. about the, the, well, this isn't possible or this is possible, or why didn't you consider this? Um, I just kind of shut that whole conversation down by setting it in the future a little bit. Yeah, I think the specific decisions you would have made would have been, oh, you are going after this and this and this and this. It, you know, it's a political yeah. commentary, not something yes. else. So, yes. So I think that's I think that that was an excellent decision. Now, now you just kind of mentioned your native players. I'm I'm kind of curious, how do you expect native players versus you know uh, non-indigenous players to react mm. to the game? Is it going to be a different experience for each group? But uh, yeah, it is going to be a different experience for each group. And I, I expect that as the game uh, sort of filters out, especially the print version filters out and we get mm-hmm. out there, I'm going to start getting some uh, negative feedback. I would say 99% of it has been positive so far right. um, uh, for, from both native folks and gamers at large. It's been positive. Um, but I will say that I'm, I'm probably going to get some feedback uh, because there is by necessity of, a, uh, of the page limitation of a book. We are, yeah. we do present sort of uh, the world in this book as sort of pan-indigenous, 
Um, we don't talk a lot about specific tribes. And when I've had questions about that, my, my response is always, well, I, there are hundreds of real indigenous tribes. I cannot dedicate even a paragraph to right. every single one. And they deserve more than a paragraph. They deserve their own source books. So my, my hope is, is that despite the negative criticism, and if I get that criticism, my response is going to be, well, please write what you think happened to your tribe in this world. Tell me. Mm-hmm. I don't. I don't want to tell you. I want you to tell me. Um, and I hope I've left that that conversational door open for for the critics, um, because I don't want Coyote and Crow to be a beginning and an end. I just I just right. want it to be a beginning, mm-hmm. and let the conversation go from there. But for non-indigenous folks, how do you think their experience will be? I mean, is it like, oh, now I'm playing like I'm an indigenous person, or is yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. So you know, I think one of the, the first things we got from non-native folks was a lot of support, but concern that they were going to be accidentally appropriative or right. uh, insensitive. And I, I totally get that impression. But I think there's a there's very much a different um, uh, a different experience when someone from a culture hands you something as a gift and says, here, please take this. Right. They're, the person on the other end is not taking it. They're being given something. Mm-hmm. And so I, what I hope is, is that we've given people the tools within the book to play comfortably, but I will also say that that the the our follow up to this book, which is going to be our we're going to be hopefully announcing this on our next Kickstarter within the next week, I hope. Cool. Uh, well, I shouldn't say Kickstarter. We're we're officially I can tell you now we're officially going to be going with GameFound, not Kickstarter. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to be doing our next crowdfunding campaign on GameFound, and it's going to be ten stories written by ten indigenous authors uh stories are are one shots are are, right. are in our game are um uh like adventure modules for other mm-hmm. rpgs so um self-contained one-shot stories from 10 indigenous authors and the idea is, is i want to give non-native players a sample of the kinds of stories that can be told here uh and there's a huge variety of stories in there and they're not all about cultural sensitivity they're not all uh, about lessons for modern role playing. They're all just like, hey, let's dive into this world and have a great right. time and, and stop right. worrying about that a little bit. I think as long as you're going into this game with a respectful mindset, you're going to be fine. Cool. Cool. Yeah. Well, actually, you'll we'll have to circle back to that. I, I want to ask a little bit more. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, uh, you know, diversity in designing, writing, illustrating RPGs, as well as, you know, diverse representation in the games themselves has become much more of a focal point for companies in the yeah. industry. You know, kind of what are your thoughts about how far the industry has come and how far does it have to go still? You know, it's funny. I, I, so I knew this question was coming and um, uh, it's actually why I asked you about swearing. Um, yeah. I'm not going to swear here, but I am going to say it's doing terribly. And, mm-hmm. and, and is it pointed in the right direction? Yeah. The direction of, of the graph is pointed in the right direction. It's going the right way. But quite frankly, our our situation in gaming is wretched right now. It is wretched. Uh, for every game I can point to that has good representation, I can give you 10 that have terrible representation. Hmm. And I think there's a, a reliance right now, even amongst responsible game publishers, to create a game, create the art for the game, and then at the end of the process, get a cultural sign-off. And that just does not fly anymore. It just does not count. I'm, I'm 
angry at some publishers that I know should know better. And I, I know, and I know some of these people on a first name basis and I, and I want to call them out privately. I'm not going to like try to shame them, but mm-hmm. I want them to do better because it's not just about representation. It's about making your game better. Like there's mm-hmm. a, there's a game out right now. I just called it out on my private Twitter, not by name, but I, t- I talked about it on my personal Twitter about how this game took an indigenous concept an indigenous name and then got some consultation on the end. And it doesn't matter whether that game is appropriate or not. It doesn't matter if they got it right or not. What matters is, is that that game might have been better if it had had an indigenous creative designing it in the first place, but we'll never know that now. And that name and that concept, we can't do it now. Indigenous designers can't do it because we're either going to be legally stepping on the toes of that game or we're going to be getting called out comparatively for the game, even if we came up with an alternate name. So that that whole door is just shut for us now. And, mm-hmm. and it's a missed opportunity for that publisher because they could have had a better game. So I'm I'm frustrated with that that uh, with the current situation in the industry. There are some folks out there that are doing amazing work right now. Um, the folks that are doing um, the Motherlands, uh, the folks are doing, uh, which is an RPG that just finished on Kickstarter. Uh, uh, Zhongxi, uh, uh, Blood in the Banquet Hall by um, uh, Banana Chan and uh, Sang Fu Lim. Those, those are, I think, classic examples of how it should be done. Um, so I'm excited for those folks, but I'm just really frustrated right now that the, the industry continues to not, not put the work in, not even the bare minimum of work. I mean, I guess, I guess the bare minimum is having consultants on, but I don't even see that as the bare minimum anymore. I see that that is covering your ass. I see that as I've created a game and I'm going to get in trouble for it if I don't get somebody to rubber stamp it. And that's, that's my assumption when I see consultants, you know, at the end of a game. So, so what, what should the industry be doing then? I mean, what, what's going to take to make this change? I, I, you know, it's a major, major issue. Everybody acknowledges it is a major issue. But there's so yeah. much momentum not going in that way. What's it going to take to shift things? Yeah, so I think so. There's a, a great example I want to ha- I have um, of a situation that um, resolved itself perfectly. So there was a designer that I was uh, associated with, or I hadn't worked with them directly in a in a uh, professional capacity, but we were acquaintances through my previous job, uh, and we had spoken a couple of times about working together on something. And he eventually approached me and said, hey, look, uh, another designer and I were working on an idea and it kind of developed into something that was very obviously for uh, it would accommodate an indigenous theme perfectly. But mm-hmm. we didn't feel like um, like we sh- we were the ones to tell that story because th- these two designers were not indigenous. And that right there was the first start of the conversation. They recognized that they were not the ones to tell that story. So they came to somebody else, me, and I said, look, I'm not the one to do this either, but let me work with putting you in touch with somebody who is the right person to tell that story. And now we're in a situation where I'm playing, I'm playing matchmaker, which is great. I love playing matchmaker with somebody who is smart and creative and has a good idea and somebody who has the cultural knowledge. And I'm going to put them together in a room and they're going to design that game together. I think that's the kind of work that a lot of publishers don't want to do right now. And to some degree, it's not about intention. I think there's a certain, 
okay, so COVID stuff aside, I think there's a certain sense within the industry right now that it's it's publish or die. There's a, a sense of I need to keep putting stuff out or I'm going to fail as a as a game publisher. And part of that is the fact that we are so used to this in, in this industry, so used to undervaluing our own products. Uh, we charge so little in this industry for our games that we're we're we risk bankrupting ourselves as publishers on a continual basis. So the rightly so, these publishers are always chasing their next paycheck. And sometimes they mean that means for them, they believe that means that they have to sacrifice the representation. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think those conversations that like I had with this designer need to be happening earlier on. They need to be thought of as, am I the person to tell this game? And if not, is there a way for me to still do this game in a way that I'm taking out that culture? Um, I think this this particular game that I mentioned on my Twitter that didn't do it right with the cultural representation or the uh, the consultation, I think mm-hmm. they could have done this game with a different name and a different theme and been fine. Right. So the question right. is, why did they feel like they needed to strap on something culturally relevant that they weren't qualified to speak to? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that I, I think that it's an interesting question. I, it just kind of goes back to people's views of certain stereotypes as, oh, that really fits this theme. So I have to put it in there yeah. because that's the yeah. stereotype. Yeah. Well, that's a huge part of the problem, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I feel like that's actually why uh, science fiction and fantasy works really well for a lot of themes mm-hmm. where you want to take a, a realistic culture, s- strip away the strip away that culture and find a, a, a different fictional culture to strap on. And all of a sudden you put yourself in a much safer space. You want to be careful because I think there's, there's sometimes where, you know, you're, you're, you're mimicking or um, parodying uh, right. real cultures. I think, I think Star Wars is a good example where quite a few times that's gone wrong and you accidentally or mal- not maliciously, but uh, casually step on other people's real cultures right. without thinking it through. Right. But I do think that uh, rather than creating, you know, another war of independence where um, uh, you know, you've got indigenous people represented in the game, but you've got um, uh, no indigenous representation within the game development. Instead of doing that again, make a war game that is on another planet with just totally alien species that have nothing to do with indigenous folks. You can still have right. the same power dynamics, the same uh, interactions. You, you fictionalize that in a safe way. Yeah. Well, that makes it a more challenged uh, challenging story to tell, right? Because then you have to come up with some interesting reason yes. why this is happening rather Absolutely. than rely on all the old tropes. <laughs> so. Absolutely. Absolutely. Got to put a little work in. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, Connor, what's next for you and Coyote and Crow? What are the cool things you're working on? You mentioned this uh, oh GameFound okay. thing. Uh, you want to talk a little bit more about that and other yeah. things you have going? Yeah. So, um, so the, the next, the next thing that's, that's immediately on the horizon is our next crowdfunding campaign, which I, I like I said, is the 10 stories from 10 indigenous authors, and we've partnered them up with 10 different artists as well. So I'm really excited about that. It's going to be a bundle um, and it's going to be, uh, we're, we're not, well, we might go to print, but that will be part of the crowdfunding campaign. We want to get right. these out in right. people's hands as quickly as possible. So these will be PDF only for the for this campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll look at having a, um, a print run down the line, depending on the success of things. Um, we're working on uh, a dice game. Uh, that is a very like family-friendly uh, teach your grandparents or your auntie kind of uh, <laughs> game that's uh, just sit around the kitchen table and play. Yeah. Um, 
that's that's going to be really fun. Uh, it uses 12-sided dice. Yes. Uh, and it, in fact, it uses the same set of dice that um, that people would use for the RPG. So right. we're hoping what we're hoping is is that folks who don't necessarily have easy access to a hobby game store uh, can get this uh, as a secondary option for a cheap set of dice for the RPG. Uh, because right. availability of 12-sided dice for folks was a big part of our concern with the original right. RPG. Um, we wanted to make sure that folks that were not not near not near hobby shops or didn't have as much money weren't necessarily stuck with having to go out and buying large sets of dice. Um, so that's that's on the horizon. Um, on the other end of the dice spectrum, we've got a, a custom set of beautiful dice coming from Q Workshop, um, and and sort of accidentally, it's probably going to be releasing the same time as the core physical RPG. So Great. it's uh, going to be a full set of of twelve twelve siders. Yeah. Uh, coming from Q Workshop, uh, and that's like part, like I said, hopefully in May, along with the, the physical book release. Nice, nice. Um, yeah. Do, do you have um, a specific date? We have what, for, I'm sorry, the, uh, for the game found thing because this is again, this is going to oh. be coming out really soon, and might be coming out yeah. right around the, the, the release of that. Yeah. So, so uh, for Game Found, it's um, it's going to be uh, the. Uh, Currently, at the moment, we're sort of testing out GameFound with the, right. the 10 stories and the digital only. We figured that was a good way to test the platform without having to rely upon a lot of shipping or wait times for our backers. Mm -hmm. um, and they they'll, we'll get a quick turnaround. Um, as far as the dice game goes, we're looking at producing that uh, separately and not going to a crowdfunding campaign. Oh, okay. Um, so we're hoping, I'm hoping, and a lot of this depends on the current world we're living in, but I'm right. hoping to have right. that before Gen Con this year. I would really love it to wow. premiere at okay. Gen Con cool. this year. Excellent. So that's that's my big hope for that one. Um, we're also working on something else, and I, I don't want to say too much about it, but okay. we brought in, um, it was a very specific plan to bring in an established game designer who was not indigenous um, mm -hmm. and pair them up with a new game designer that was indigenous and have them create a tabletop hobby-focused game set in the world of coyote and crow but separate from the role-playing game but still has all of the sort of thematic elements mm -hmm. um and they're working right now on this game and that that will be going to crowdfunding hopefully later this year um i'm really excited for that one uh, they've got some fantastic mechanics that they're working on and i think it's something fairly unique i don't think i've seen some of these mechanics put forth in the way they've been put forth uh, uh um, before in other games so It'll be interesting to see how that how that plays out wow that that sounds like you have a lot going on this year you know from just yeah. kind of you know getting things started now it's all kind of exploding so yeah that's awesome. yeah I, I guess i should also mention too we're in um in the, the final stages of getting the game ready for both uh roll 20 and foundry for nice. virtual tabletop nice. um those are being worked on concurrently and, and i'm hoping that they're going to be out before april uh, that's a stab in the dark at this point, but before April is my hope. Um, and then a novel, uh, and we've got a novel coming out too. Uh, Are you writing the novel? novel yeah, we've got a full length, uh, full length novel set in the world yeah. of Coyote and Crow. Uh, I don't want to say too much about it yet, but okay. we'll, we're, we're approaching the final stages of the first draft on that novel. Not, not written by me, but okay. written by yeah, another author, another indigenous author. That's awesome. Wow. Yeah, no, that's that sounds like you really got your plate full. I appreciate, you know, taking the time here to, to yeah. be on the podcast today. This has been great. Oh, good. Yeah, I, I think it went a little, probably a little over time, but no, no, thanks for letting is, me ramble. 
this is perfect. So thanks again for joining us and uh, good luck with, with all these endeavors this year. It's, it's, it's wonderful seeing, seeing everything that you're doing. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on.